If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Frederick Douglass. In this episode, Douglass will explain why this revolution had to happen now and who had the most difficult task, Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. So you had mentioned Elizabeth Stanton a little bit ago, and it sounds mm-hmm. like you and her and Susan B. Anthony, mm-hmm. you were all for women's rights and working together at some point. They were both vigorous abolitionists. They did great work. You were on their side, they they were were on your side. They were also, they were great. I mean, I love writing and oratory. Most women were not allowed to give speeches. A woman I knew, Mariah Stewart, a black woman from Boston, was a brilliant orator. It wasn't until 1830, she was the first woman, black or white, to give a public speech. Wow. Women were thought to be publicly silent. It's interesting, I was talking to Abigail Adams, like I said, a couple days ago, and she more or less said that when a woman married a man, that women were more or less property as well. That's correct. That's correct. In fact, when women married men, any money that they had inherited from their families automatically became the possession of the husband. They had no control over it. That seems like it raises the likelihood of some very unscrupulous activity as men are courting women. That is correct. Yeah. Okay, let me go back to this question I was going to ask you where I was going to trap you with this. And I say trap you because I don't blame you for what I'm about to ask you. I really don't, if it even happened the way that I'm seeing it. So when there was a time when you were trying to vote on men, or not men, but black people having the right to vote and women having the right to vote. And if I have the facts, what happened was, is that Elizabeth Stanton wanted those two to go together. Yes, both Elizabeth Stanton and Susan B. Anthony initially wanted both to go together, but it became clear in the debates in Congress that there would be no way to achieve universal female suffrage and universal manhood suffrage. And when that was, when that became clear, they vigorously advocated for universal female suffrage. And I, of course, advocated for universal male suffrage because of the terrorism, the far greater terrorism terrorism that was done to black men. So you saw that it wasn't going to go through with both of those options or those That's rights. Exactly right. And frankly, so that was also the case with Elizabeth Cady Stan and Susan B. Anthony, just based on all of the debates. It became very clear, partly because the Civil War was a true revolution. And a revolution is different from every other time period in that a revolution is, especially in a democracy, a revolution is this small window. Revolutions rarely last long. So they're very short. But in a revolution, you can get revolutionary change, dramatic change. So there's a small window for dramatic change to occur. If you miss that window, you're stuck. 
And that's why you said, look, we're not going to get this whole thing through, so let's pull part of it out and get through what we can for now. That's right. The Civil War is the revolution. The metaphor that I use is it's like a bull. Normally, in the United States, the bull has been upright. So radicals on the sides, it's like milk being poured into a bowl. It goes to the center. In the United States, there, often there's very little change because both parties, both sides are collaborate. They need to, they need to compromise. I understand uh, this compromise the because bowl, you're right. The bowl, it wouldn't have gone through. Revolution is when you flip a bowl upside down and you pour milk on it, it splatters all over the place. <laughs> That's where you get that splattering means radical change. That's a brilliant metaphor. I love that. I can't believe I've never heard that. So let's go back in time for a minute. Let's forget about what we're talking about for a minute. Let's go back to back when the Founding Fathers are negotiating the Declaration of Independence and they're deciding who's going to have rights and who's not going to have rights. Did you ever criticize those men for not addressing slavery back then? I recognized the great opportunity that was seen in the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration was the first document that I know of that embraced equality. And I and almost all of my friends and colleagues in the line in the Declaration, all men are created equal. We all understood men as humans, not just males, but humanity. The Declaration is one of the most powerful documents in terms of equal rights, in terms of humanity, in terms of equality in world history. And I recognize that. And so, yes, the founders, almost all of them own slaves, but the power of the Declaration was extraordinary. And I became an advocate of the Constitution because of the preamble of the Constitution, that the whole function of the Constitution is to secure the blessings of liberty. That's the preamble. My mentor and William Lloyd Garrison and Garrisonians believe that the Constitution was pro-slavery. They ripped up the document. They refused to vote, to refuse to be part of democracy because they saw it as profoundly pro-slavery. I felt that there would be more power. And I, at one point, I was in line with them, but I recognized there could be far more power by using this document, the Constitution for the cause of equal rights, and there's language in it. There's language in it that suggests it. As I said, the preamble of securing the blessings of liberty for all is a powerful document. It's one of many important contributions of Charles Sumner. The 14th Amendment is that's the Constitution. The Constitution is transformed with the Reconstruction Amendments in that the 14th Amendment, for the first time, except for the preamble of the Constitution, invokes equality, equal protection under the law for everyone. And yet, when the government was formed and all of the critical documents were created, they all said men are equal, which all should men, mean right. man, yeah, which should well, mean all yeah. mankind. But yet, I that isn't like what happened. That's correct. It's how one interprets the document, how one interprets the Constitution, and the Constitution is based on precedent, on how people have interpreted it in the past creates a precedent and it becomes harder if that precedent is sustained for years and years it becomes harder to overturn it 
So do you feel that those founding fathers should have done a better job clarifying that all really meant? No, because they were, at that time, the very idea of equality was seen as almost laughable. There was, as I've said, there's a, a humans have a hard time accepting equality, and you know, the founders recognized how revolutionary the Declaration was to begin with. Okay. Uh, in England, there was rigorous hire. Throughout the world, there were rigorous political and social hierarchies. And at the time, the Declaration of Independence was, I believe, the most radical revolutionary document produced. Definitely. I just find it interesting to go back at that. Now I understand what your position was, and I'm surprised that is your position, but it, I would have guessed that you would have been frustrated that they didn't deal with it right there, and it was done. But you No, know, because by being sympathetic to them, it empowered me to use politics to be part of the political system because I recognize that as an activist, you want to change hearts and minds, but society doesn't change in the United States and democracy until you actually get laws to change it. And having laws to change it requires an engagement with the Constitution, with the Declaration, with the legal apparatus. I find it interesting that back then they had to make concessions to pull the Union together and not abolish slavery. And then later on, you had to make the concession to get voting rights through for, for black men by... But not women. Yeah. I mean, you had the same dilemma. If you hadn't yes, made those yeah. concessions, neither of them would have happened. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. We just briefly talked about the speech on the 5th of July. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me a little bit about that speech? And specifically, the people that you were speaking in front of, were they expecting for you to give, stand up and give some powerful speech about what a great day the 4th of July was, and you completely flipped that upside down? Is that what happened? I was asked to give the speech by the anti-slavery women primarily in Rochester, where I lived at the beautiful Corinthian Hall. I gave 4th of July speeches virtually every year. But I was inspired at this point to write a speech that really interrogated the United States. And I've long, as a writer, recognized the power, the rhetorical power of a Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the book of the Bible. But what a Jeremiah is, it's a song of lament that aims to restore or recover ideals make those ideals real. And so I wanted to create a speech that was a Jeremiah, and I realized as an orator, that as a public speaker, and there were hundreds of people there, and I'm proud of being one of the greatest orators based on audiences. I've spoken in front of more people than any other figure in the United States. And I wanted to begin the speech by putting my audience at ease, I knew it was a mostly white audience. As an order, one of the cardinal rules is know your audience. And before I gave a speech, I would become familiar with the hall. I was obsessive about 
having the lectern, everything in the right place. I wanted to know where people sat so I could look at them and speak to them. And so I began by making them feel proud of what I called of your nation. And I purposely used the term you versus I. And so I referred to the founders, and that was one reason why they should be proud of your nation. And suddenly, then the first shift, I call it a double reversal speech. The first shift is when I suddenly said, what have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? And then for the next hour, I just excoriate the nation, dramatizing the national sins of slavery and racism. And I end by lifting up, and I think I did, lifting up my audience. I leave off with hope and the progress that has been made in the rise of abolitionism and anti-slavery, the abolition of slavery and by Great Britain, which was a huge inspiration to us in the United States. And in 1852, in fact, the United States was the largest slave society on earth. Most other slave-owning nations, not just England, but France, most of Europe had abolished slavery, recognizing its evil. I wanted to reflect that, to recognize that. And that Jeremiah has a power, I think, that most other forms of speaking does not. Do you love the United States? That's a very good question. If I didn't have some love for the United States, I would have stayed in the British Isles when I fled there. After the success of my first autobiography, I had to expose myself because audience members started accusing me of never having been a slave because I was so eloquent. And the worst thing that could happen to an abolitionist or a speaker is to be accused of lies. So I felt the need to write my own autobiography and name names and who my owners were because I was still a fugitive. I was legally still a slave. I could be captured at any time and remanded into slavery. And that first narrative did very well. It was a bestseller. And because of that, my owners jointly were Hugh Ald and Thomas Ald. In fact, Hugh Ald, I read in the Baltimore paper, he vowed to go to any length possible to recapture and re-enslave me. Really? Yes, I fled to the British Isles and lived there for two years and loved it. It was the first time in my life where I could walk down the street and not have some white person refer to me in the n-word or not have someone spit in my face simply because of my skin and there would have been no fugitive slave laws yeah the only reason i returned or the main reason i returned one is my family was still in the united states i could have brought them to england but the main reason i return is the sense of duty and obligation to my fellow blacks the fellow african-americans fellow fugitives fellow slaves fellow free blacks to try to do what i could create a democracy or to help establish a democracy, not just in name, but in fact. I am so amazed that you wrote this autobiography at all, because your first autobiography names places and tells the whole story. And now I understand why you did that, because you were being questioned. But It literally was a flashing sign that said, hey, if you're looking for this slave, here's where he is. And 
it is such a bold thing to be a fugitive slave and then write something. You had to be thrilled that it was selling and at the same time horrified that it was selling. Correct. That's why I fled to the British Isles. And I still am friends with many of those people and their families. How many autobiographies did you write throughout your life? Three. I just finished my third one because of, as I've said, because who I was in 1845 was totally different from who I was in 1855. By 1855, looking back, I had become a real intellectual. In a sense, I dated my birth to 1838 when I fled from slavery. And so by 1845, you know, I'm less than 10 years old and I needed to catch up. I've worked to the bone. I'm a workaholic. I was reading voraciously. Words are the most powerful weapon I've ever come across. And so by 1855, I felt more confident in being able to write a real, an intellectual, penetrating, richer account of myself and my world, which I call my bondage and my freedom. And it was the first time that a former slave had spent a lot of time with that transformation between bondage and freedom. Then my first one, it ends at the moment of freedom. I wanted to contrast bondage and freedom, and I was more confident. I was also more of a revolutionary. By 1855, I, in fact, I said in my bondage and my freedom that a slave who kills his master should be celebrated with the founding fathers. Wow. When was that? In my bondage and my freedom. If you have not read it, you need to read my second autobiography, which is the one I'm proudest of. The second one. It's the most, the second one, My Bondage and My Freedom. Of the three autobiographies, it's my favorite. It's interesting to look at your whole life and see these times where violence served you so well, and yet there was so much time where the words were more powerful than the violence. I mean, you go back to when we were talking about Covey. Had that fight not taken place? Who knows if anything would have happened next? That was a pivotal moment. And yet, after that, you end up going on this long speaking tour, and everybody knows you for your words and your oratory, and that's how you make your name. But then there's another switch, because then we go to the Civil War. Didn't you play a role in recruiting black soldiers and sending them yes, to fight? Absolutely. Yes. I mean... Because the, I recognized before Lincoln, before most people that the Civil War was the golden opportunity to destroy slavery. And let's be clear, slavery is a state of war itself. Mm. Without violence or the threat of violence, slavery can never exist. Slavery is a state of war. Ask any enslaved person in history, read any enslaved person's account, that is a fact. And so essentially, even though I am a peacemaker, I oppose violence. The question is, the violence to destroy slavery better than the violence of millions of slaves? And that answered my question. And in fact, friends of mine, like John Greenleaf Whittier, the Quaker poet, and other Quakers. I'm not a Quaker, but Quakers, if you don't know them, they have been the pacifist group. It's a religion that starts in England. In fact, Quakers refused to fight in the French and Indian War. They refused to fight in the Revolutionary War because of their pacifism. But during the Civil War, 
Quakers and Whittier encouraged Quakers to fight because he said, yes, we are pacifists, but there is no such thing as pacifism. There's a question of the war of slavery or what's going to win, the war of slavery or northern efforts to destroy slavery, which is also a war. So for the first time, you had most Quakers enthusiastically supporting a war. And Quakers were the first white abolitionists, both in Britain and the United States, because as a Quaker, you believe that Jesus and God is within you and within all people. So human beings are sacred. To do violence against a human being is to do violence against God. It seems like you had perfect timing on when to choose violence and when to choose words because you're absolutely right the civil war had to be fought there's just no way around it there's no way to move past that point without that war it doesn't seem that way but yet years before when you were acquainted with john brown also a believer that blood had to be shed if anything was going to be done and on the raid at harper's ferry you decided not to go why is that for practical reasons, John Brown was a good friend of mine. But when he described his strategy, his plan, I knew he was going into it, walking into a steel trap, and I told him that. And I told him he shouldn't do it because he was a friend, a close friend of mine. In retrospect, I'm almost glad he did because his raid on Harper's Ferry created a major spark that led to the Civil War. Huh. in part because of his raid on Harper's Ferry. It split the Democratic Party and enabled the election of Lincoln, who was the first anti-slavery president elected. When John Quincy Adams and John Adams were elected president, they did not disseminate their anti-slavery views when they were running or as presidents. And Lincoln ran his central platform. The central platform of the Republican Party was an anti-slavery platform. It makes sense why you didn't go on that raid. You, were you also acquainted with Harriet Tubman at that time? Because is that why she didn't Harriet go as Tubman, well? Harriet is a good friend. Harriet was an advisor to John Brown. Yes, it's why she didn't go. In fact, Harriet was from that area, so she advised him about the area. And in fact, John Brown was a close friend of Harriet. In fact, he referred to her, she, he called her General Tubman. That's how he addressed her, General <laughs> Tubman. So you'd mentioned Lincoln. It's amazing we've come this far and yeah. we haven't talked about Lincoln at all. What was your experience when you first met Lincoln? It was far better than I had expected. He was not a revolutionary, not a radical, and I knew that. But I had argued from the beginning that Southerners, rebels bombing a Fort Sumner was a golden opportunity to end slavery. And I argued from the very beginning that the easiest way to win the war is to free slaves and arm them. Because they know the South far better than white Northerners do. It's a, it's a huge weapon in winning the war. Lincoln finally came around to that. And so I first I went to Washington, D.C. because I devoted months to recruiting the first northern black regiment, the Massachusetts regiment. In fact, two of my sons, I'm proud to say that two of my sons were the first two listed on the on the roll, on the muster roll. And your sons fought in the war? Yes, two sons fought in the war. 
And one was Lewis was injured, badly injured. And so in any event, in 1863, after Lincoln issues his Emancipation Proclamation that calls for not only freeing all slaves of rebel masters, but also arming them and using them in the war. Jefferson Davis, the head of the rebellion, issues his own proclamation that says any black soldier who is captured by us will be automatically enslaved or murdered or killed. Jefferson Davis uh, said that? Violated. Yes, that was a proclamation. And my two sons, I essentially made sure that they joined. And Lincoln did nothing in terms of retaliation to prevent Davis's proclamation from having teeth. And so I was outraged. I mean, Lincoln was very tardy in a lot of ways. Great person, but not a revolutionary. So I took a train to Washington and decided I was going to air my grievances. Because, as I said, blacks were the greatest weapon for winning the war. As I said, they knew the southern landscape. They hated white southerners because most of them had been slaves in any event. I arrived in August 10th, I think, and it was early in the morning. There was already a long line to see Lincoln. I knew that he had an open-door policy. I decided to send up my card, see if that would help, and it did. Once Lincoln got my card, he called me up, so I passed all these whites, some of them not happy that I was being able to meet with him while they had to still wait for hours. And he immediately essentially started apologizing and saying, I have read your work, I know of you, it's very good to meet you, what can I do? And so I aired my grievance. And we had well over an hour conversation and ended by referring to each other as friends, essentially as equals. So we both publicly noted that later. And sure enough, within a week or so, I can't remember when exactly, Lincoln issued a counter-proclamation saying that for any rebel officer who enslaves or murders a black, the U.S. Army, the Union, will execute a rebel prisoner of war. And that stopped them, or helped a lot. Wow, I didn't know about that either. So you said Lincoln was a little late. What are some of his flaws, or were some of his flaws? One, he was a colonizationist, and he continued to endorse, in other words, the way to end the war and to solve the problem of slavery is just colonize all blacks send them to another country, which is essentially a form of ethnic cleansing. And in fact, he tried, he advocated colonization and sent some of my comrades from, from Washington, D.C. to some land outside of Haiti or near Haiti, the first black republic, which was a disaster. Most of them died from the pathogens that they were not uh, accustomed to. And in fact, in his preliminary emancipation proclamation, he encourages colonization. And so in other words, at that time, his vision of democracy was still a white man's democracy, not an interracial democracy. And... I felt the need to educate him on that point so that he would recognize the significance of African-Americans to the war effort. And he eventually did. By 1864, 
he publicly said that by that point there are almost 300,000 or 200,000 African Americans blacks fighting for the war in the Navy and the Army and all units and he said we cannot do without these hundreds of thousands of men he said with them we will win this war without them we will lose it and you had much to do with that some to do with I mean to Lincoln's credit the Navy from a lot of people even now, a lot of whites don't know this now, and that is that the Navy from the very beginning was integrated because blacks in the South and the North, we've long understood, had a better sense of waterways, especially in the, in the South. They knew the waterways, about fugitives, free blacks, even some masters had slaves learn how to navigate boats. It was foundational. I mean, South had no roads. There was no infrastructure. It was all about a plantation. They did not want a civil society. They wanted plantations. And so in any event, Lincoln, the administration recognized that. And also the naval boats, it's out of the public eye. It's one thing to integrate a union ship. It's another thing to give black men a gun and tell them to go kill whites. I see. Yeah, you can't wield a ship, so to speak. Right. Right. So the Harper's Weekly, uh, during the war, a great magazine, celebrated early on in 1861 two heroes of the Union, both blacks who were absconded or stole Confederate gunboats and delivered it to the Union, which was huge, and another hero who murdered a white boat owner and also brought the boat to Union shores, and he and his fellow blacks enlisted and continued to serve in the U.S. Navy for the rest of the war. I did not know that. Do you still have the walking stick from Lincoln? I do. It's one of my proudest moments when Mary Todd gave me that walking stick. I gave a, one of my favorite speeches, and looking back, is the speech that I gave on Lincoln in, in 76 at the end of Reconstruction, where I recognized, I said that it's wrong to judge Lincoln on abolition grounds. I mean, that's not who he was. He was a president. To be elected president, you can never be too radical. You have to be something of a centrist. I know mm -hmm. that. And so I said, if you judge Lincoln, from the perspective of abolitionists, from the perspective of someone who is advocating for true equality and equal rights for all, he was dull, tardy, unimpressive, if not... Because he wasn't a revolutionary. Because he wasn't a revolutionary. Yeah. But if you assess him on who he was, he hated slavery, I'm convinced of that, but he was not a revolutionary, and yet he became, he was forced to become a revolutionary through the war. It's why my criticism of him it was early on. I feel that I'm a much better student and critic and someone more knowledgeable about revolutions than Lincoln was. And Lincoln was much more fearful of revolutions, was deeply fearful. For me, revolution is the only way to get things done. Freeing slavery was a revolution. Ending slavery was a revolution. The 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments were revolutions. It makes sense. Initially, when the Civil War started, it appears that to Lincoln that this was about keeping the Union together. But I had a long conversation with Jefferson Davis, and Jefferson Davis believes that 
the war was just about the South had a right to secede. They had the rights to be their own country if they wanted to. And that was what Lincoln, it was about with Lincoln too, that they didn't have the right to secede. But that the war eventually became about only slavery to prevent other nations from getting involved and also to pull people behind that cause. Do you feel like you played a role in raising that level of what the war was about? Yes, I feel like I did. In fact, after Southerners bombed Fort Sumner, I and my fellow black and white abolitionists for the first time were seen as prophets because we recognized the degree to which ending slavery was revolutionary, a war over slavery. When Southerners bombed Fort Sumner, when they seceded, they were very clear about why they were seceding to protect slavery and expand and I recognize this is a revolutionary moment that we need to capitalize on. And Lincoln was fearful of that revolution and sought to prevent it. He could have, he was far better than James Buchanan would have been, or even Douglas would have been. It's hard to know what would have happened, but John Brown was important in Lincoln's election because after John Brown's raid, the Democratic Party, the pro-slavery Democratic Party, split into two because after Brown's raid, white Southerners didn't trust even Northern Democrats. And so there was a Southern Democratic Party and a Northern Democratic Party. And so there's a four-way race rather than a two-way race. And Lincoln barely won the four-way race. Had it been just an election between Stephen Douglas and Lincoln, very good chance that Stephen Douglas would have won. You have been so gracious with your time, and I am so thankful. I have three last questions that I want to ask you. The first one that I wanted to ask you was, your life has, it appears to be this, in this constant state of improvement, from reading to when you're six, and you just go to the next thing and the next thing, and you just keep making impossible things possible. And... As that happened, and I understand that you were ambassador to Haiti and you were a federal marshal at one point, you were involved in the government at the highest level, your relationship with the black community probably had to change because of that. And with whites, how did that change? Or did it change? Yes, after the war, I got into numerous arguments with some of my colleagues, fellow African-American colleagues. For example, President Grant wanted to annex Santo Domingo, and I supported that. And in retrospect, I wish I hadn't, because one reason which I didn't appreciate at the time was the reason Grant wanted to annex Santo Domingo is he hoped for the whole island, Haiti, is the first black republic, and every single African-American is proud of Haiti's accomplishment. It's when blacks rose up in revolt and fended off and defeated three of the most powerful navies in the world out of England, France, and Spain. So there was a good chance Haiti would lose its status. The main reason why Grant was lured by a number of greedy wealthy men, he wanted Santo Domingo, it would become a safety valve for sending U.S. blacks to Haiti. That's why Grant wanted that? Well, it's not why Grant wanted it, but why many of his supporters 
Oh, okay. So I didn't know that. Ongoing racism. And I supported the annexation of Santo Domingo. And in retrospect, I regret that. And I got into a lot of arguments with African-Americans. Same with I also encouraged African-Americans to remain in the South. I regret having said that because especially after the end of Reconstruction with the rise of lynching and terrorism, where no federal troops were interfering, it was, it was horrible. This would be one of your regrets, huh? Yeah. So there were, but I love debating. I, even when there's a vigorous debate, I learn from the debates. I'm willing to change. As I said, that the ability to evolve, continually evolve and to change is one of the great beauties of being a human. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. All right. Second question of the last three. I spoke a couple days ago with your great-great-great-grandson, and he helps with an organization that prevents human trafficking, which would be the slavery of our yeah. time. Yeah. If you could speak with him right now, what would you say to him? I would say thank you. I would just say thank you. Okay, that's fair. Last question. You have used the word revolution probably as many times as you have used the word democracy. Obviously, two words that mean a lot to you. What will the next revolution be? As I've said, revolutions will achieve dramatic change, but you don't know which way they're going to go. When I embraced the revolution of the Civil War, it was a no-brainer because slavery was expanding in the United States. Had slave owners and the Democratic Party gotten its way, and Lincoln says this, rightly says this in his House Divided speech, slavery would have canvassed every state in the Union because it was the property of a slave owner. If you're a Mississippi slave owner, you could take your property, Boston or Chicago or Illinois, where Lincoln lived, and it's your property. And as long as your residency remains in Alabama or Mississippi, you can bring 100 slaves and start a factory there. And that would have happened, possibly, probably. Lincoln was correct that if Southerners had their way, slavery would have canvassed the entire United States. This nation will be all one thing or all another. It was Lincoln's greatest speech. I told him that. It will be all slave or all free. And he was right. It's interesting. Lincoln was such a brilliant man, and yet that thought that he had of sending all blacks to some other country, you just look back at that, it's just absurd. Can you imagine if you just picked everybody up and moved them? That's just crazy. Well, I mean, he had a great sense of public opinion. And I think it was strategic. He wanted to arm blacks. He wanted to appease conservative northerners. He didn't want to come across as a revolutionary. Had he, would have more states could have seceded. He needed the border states, the slave northern states. In fact, he said numerous times, if we lose Kentucky, we lose the war. Maryland is another. At one point, southern, essentially rebel Marylanders tried to prevent him from taking office. There was an assassination attempt on Lincoln from, by Marylanders, thus that we know. And so I think that it was a rhetorical statement to appease northern conservatives 
And I criticize Lincoln for being too obsessed with the border states. I, in retrospect, he was right to fear the secession of border states. It was a true revolution where if anything could happen in any moment. And although Lincoln hated revolution as a president, he ended up, in retrospect, brilliantly, beautifully navigating the course of the war in a way that that I think, although I've in speeches said differently, he essentially came around to my perspective, which was this is a war to abolish slavery and that will preserve the nation. And Lincoln initially, at least rhetorically, said this is a war to preserve the Union with or without slavery. That may have been rhetorical on his part, may have been a way to appease border states. One last question. Who had the bigger task, the more impossible task, Lincoln or Washington? Great question. I'll say Lincoln because I know much more about him and I'm much more familiar with the era, but both had major tasks. I think I agree. There was a moment, in fact... There was a moment in 64 where a lot of Northerners, Democratic Northerners, were we called them copperheads. They called themselves anti-war, but what they really hated was the idea of emancipation. And they, so copperhead was their protest against Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. And there were two kinds of it, copperheads. One is the Union as it was. In other words, let's end the war right now. They saw themselves as pacifists, but they're anything but is the Copperheads wanted an immediate end to the war and the United States would remain as it was with slavery intact. So they would overturn the Emancipation Proclamation. There would never be a 13th Amendment. And the other Copperheads just let the South go and remain a separate slave-owning nation, which would also have been horrific for African Americans. And there's a very good chance that George McClellan would have been reelected in 1864 because so many Northerners just wanted an end to the war. Their death toll had been horrific. And had Sherman not taken Atlanta and marched to the sea and essentially sent a message that this war is almost over, I think McClellan could have been elected. And had McClellan been elected, it would have one way or another been a victory for the South. Well, you were alive during some interesting times. You just said something, and I was thinking about, you had said that one of the options was that the South would just be their own country, and they would have slavery, and then the North would be no slavery. Instead of there being one war, that probably would have been a hundred years of little skirmishes as the slaves were trying to escape from the South, and the North was trying to come up and get them. It probably would have been a never-ending list of little wars. Yes, that's true. And had had that happened, I I mean, the emancipation during the war in the United States led to the end of slavery. It was important, precursor to the end of slavery in Brazil. Had Southerners won the war, there easily could have been a reversal such that more nations create slave societies. And one book I read said that in the absence of an abolition movement, if history is any guide... Human beings will enslave other humans. Jeez. And in my experience, that is correct. I think so. Wow. Mr. Douglas, I have to stop asking questions because if I don't, I'll never stop because 
I am just so thankful for all of your wisdom and your contribution. So thank you again for all of this time today, and I wish you good health. Thank you. Frederick Douglass was a remarkable historical figure who overcame the odds to become one of the most influential voices of his time. He fought tirelessly for the abolition of slavery, women's rights, and the full integration of African Americans into American society. But what amazed me most about Douglass is how adept he was at walking the line between when words were the answer and when violence was the only answer. Revolution is messy, but without it, Giant, sweeping change is often impossible. It's hard to imagine what might have happened if Sophia Alt hadn't introduced Douglas to words and books. Although that moment was brief, it ignited a spark in him and is a testament to the impact that education has on the underprivileged. How many Douglases around the world are being repressed by lack of education right now? Thank you for listening, and if you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like us to send a smartphone to your favorite historical person, write us a nice review and include who you'd like to hear from. Your suggestion might be the next call we make. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm history.